Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. Hello everyone, this is Shannon and I am here today with your usual guide to the week's new releases as well as an author interview. My guest today is author Jennifer Stiles, whose novel Exile Music released on May 5th. I hope you enjoy her interview, which you will hear in just a little while before we get into the new books. But before we can do any of that great stuff, I have the usual housekeeping information for you. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. And now let's hear from author Jennifer Stiles. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and I am joined today by author Jennifer Stile, whose novel entitled Exile Music was released in the U.S. on May 5th. So, Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Can we get started by you giving listeners a little bit of an introduction to Exile Music? Um, Sure. So the novel is based on an unexplored bit of World War II history. Um, It follows a family of Jewish Viennese musicians who flee Austria in 1939 um, to find refuge in Bolivia. There were between 10,000 and 20,000 Jewish refugees in Bolivia during the war. Um, many of whom were artists and musicians. Um, And so my book is inspired by their stories. I interviewed some of these refugees and, and, and it's their, their stories that compelled me to write this. So that is something that I never knew. You know, we read a lot about World War II these days, but we see it taking place like in Britain or France or Germany or the U.S. And I've just never seen anything about Bolivia. Right. I hadn't either um, until I was living in Bolivia. I was living in La Paz, Bolivia. Um, My husband was working for the European Union at the time, and he came home from work one night having spoken with the Austrian consul and said, did you know that there were between 10 and 20,000 Jewish refugees living here during the war. Um, And soon after that conversation with him, I met a man who is the son of a refugee from 
Poland. Um, he was born right after his parents fled Europe. And he introduced me to other refugees. And I just started to imagine what it must have been like to come from somewhere like Vienna, this uh, large, very urban um, place to end up in the middle of the Andes Mountains at 12,000 feet in a place that, according to one of the men I interviewed, was a little more than a village. I mean, it was about 200,000 people. So um, it wasn't was a bit more than a village, but that was his <laughs> that was his impression of it coming from Vienna. And he thought, this isn't a city. This isn't what a city means to me. This is like the middle of nowhere. Um, it's so isolated and it's challenging to live at, at altitude, but also, you know, it was a completely alien culture and language. And so I was really interested in, in finding out what it must have been like for them. I'm ashamed to say that I know very, very little um, about that area like in general, but in particular, just very little about Bolivia, um, especially historically. So I love that you chose to set a novel in a place that just doesn't get the, the same amount of like media exposure as some of the bigger, more like urban areas of the world do. Right. Um, one of the advantages of being married to a diplomat is I get to live in a lot of really interesting countries that a, a lot of people do not write about. Um, I mean, my first two books were related to Yemen, and then there aren't a lot of novelists writing about Yemen. Um, and Bolivia, uh, as well, has a fairly small publishing industry in the country. And I, I haven't read um, I mean, there are there are plenty of books set in Bolivia, and I read a lot of memoirs set in Bolivia, but I'd never read a novel that addressed this particular part of history. Um, and I I loved living there. It was just a remarkable country in many ways. So have you been interested in kind of the World War II era for quite a while, or did your interest kind of develop as you heard these stories about the Jewish refugees? Um, my interest developed as I heard the story about these refugees. I hadn't considered actually writing a World War II book before. My first two books were very contemporary, and I hadn't written a historical novel before. Um, and it was really it was a challenging experience for me um, doing all that research. And you know, I'd be writing a, a scene and realize I didn't know how they would be cooking or what their clothing would be made out of, or um, what kind of fuel they used, how their houses were heated. There was all that ah. kind of, that kind of stuff that took me forever to kind of, you know, I, I found myself watching videos on YouTube of kerosene burners, so I knew what they looked oh, like. Oh, so you could sort of understand them Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so that... I mean, I, I've read a lot about World War II, and I was really, as a child, I was quite obsessed with Holocaust books. Um, so I, I'd read a lot of it. I hadn't ever thought um, that I had anything to add to that until I lived in Bolivia. And I thought, you know, I haven't actually read about this particular group of Jewish refugees, and, and I'd like to see their story told to a wider audience. So if you had to guess, what would you say it is that seems to fascinate so much of the world um, with this particular era in history? Um, that is a good question. I think perhaps because we 
grapple with how we could have let it happen um, because we were all complicit uh, in what happened to the Jews of Europe. Um, you know, the United States wasn't granting visas to them. I mean, by 1938, only three countries in the world were still granting visas to Jews. And I think, you know, some of us today, we just think, how did this end up happening? Why, how could we have refused these people um, who were so clearly desperate and it was so clear what was happening to them? And I think it's such an impossible thing to comprehend that we just wrestle with it into infinity. Um, I think, you know, I interviewed a refugee named Guillermo who, who fled Vienna in, I think, 1940, actually, and came to Bolivia. He's now 88, and he, he cries when he talks about the books he's reading about the Holocaust, and he still can't stop obsessing about, like, why it happened. Uh-huh. Um, and there are, you know, there are many answers for that. Sure. Um, but it was a, sure. it was, it was a worldwide failure of, of to help these people who are so clearly being slaughtered. Yes. And I think one of the things that has concerned me sort of as we go further away from this time in our history is that the will people forget that this happened and will it kind of seep away from our collective consciousness and perhaps at some point in the future, you know, allow something of this magnitude to happen again. And it makes me wonder if part of that, you know, goes into our need to kind of keep this time alive. Yes. I think it's, I think it's very important for that reason. I think I think it could easily happen again, um, especially in the current global climate. There's so much um, persecution of refugees. There's so many countries yes. who don't want to open their borders to refugees. There's, you know, what's happening to Mexican families um, mm -hmm. in the U.S. And, and the way that our country's treating refugees. I mean, I, I, I could so easily see something like the Holocaust happening again. I do think that our collective memory is fading. Um, and you know, people say, well, there's so many Holocaust books. Do we really need more? And I think, well, I just keep hearing completely new stories. Every single one of those millions of deaths is a completely different story. And, and I don't, I don't know if we'll ever see them all told, but we won't because there's a lot of stories we still don't know. Um, I mean, when I did research on the musicians of the Vienna Philharmonic, which expelled 13 of its, well, all of its Jewish musicians, um, what happened to a few of them was was unclear, you know, there, and there was, you know, not the details are not known. Right. So then people sort of in writing these books kind of do their research and in some ways, you know, create um, as best they can, like possibilities for people in those in those situations. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, my characters are fictional, but I wanted to create as real a context for their lives as possible. Um, the context of their lives being built by research and, and parts of their characters as well, parts of their story as well came from people I spoke with or things I read about. 
So you talked about interviewing refugees and watching, you know, YouTube videos of things. Did you do a lot of kind of book-based research as well as you got ready to write this book? I did. I read a lot. Um, there were kind of two different parts to that. There was, um, I had to read a lot about what it was like in Austria in the 30s for the beginning part of the book. So there, right. I tried I tried to read as many memoirs as possible, things that are true. Just, I wanted to, because I had to learn about the whole world, what people were wearing and eating and the kind of furniture they had and what their homes were like, what kind of music was playing. I did a ton of musical research because, of course, music is a whole through line for the book. Um, yes. But then and when it came to Bolivia, there were also... I, I found a lot of personal accounts from refugees, not all of which were published by um, big publishers. A lot of them were self-published essentially for their families. Um, and so those were interesting to read. I, I read this one hugely informative account by a Bolivian miner um, who wrote about his four years or 10 years. I can't remember how long it was, but who wrote about his time in Bolivia. And that was that was fascinating to read because it was about the time and he wasn't Jewish, but it was a way for me to get to grips with the, the you know, what society was like, what the, the cultural, what the city was like, what the customs and people and food and all that were like. So I, I did do a lot of reading of first person accounts. And for me, I think some of the very best historical fiction is capable of bringing these aspects of the world you know to life because we don't know you know I was born in 1980 and I know very little about what the world would have looked like you know in in the late 30s early 40s so I love when novels can in some ways you know transport me back there and kind of give me a glimpse of this part of history that I just don't know as much about as as I could or should Right. I mean, I feel, I mean, a lot of the fiction that I've read is more, you know, if it's really well crafted and told and researched, it, 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 it almost sticks with me more than a lot of the nonfiction I've read. Um, it gets me kind of emotionally to the heart of the story. Um, and even though that story might be fictional, uh, it will have resonance. Like Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, those characters are so memorable. I read that shortly after it came out, and that was kind of one of the biggest World War II novels, sort of of, you know, of the decade. Um, and it seemed to really kind of get people's attention in a way that some of the other books that were published around the same time, like, didn't necessarily create that like uproar of of buzz the way All the Light We Cannot See did. So when you sat down to create your characters, did you look at like things that were going to make them stand out from kind of the rest of the characters out there in not exactly similar stories, but stories that were set, you know, within the same historical period? Um, I suppose in a way, although I don't think that was very conscious, I think, um, I'm not much of a planner when I write. A, a lot of the times I don't even know what I'm going to be writing when I sit down or even which scene I'm going to be writing. Um, I don't write everything in order. Um, and I discover a lot through the process of writing. It's very inefficient. 
I have to write <laughs> 10, 10 million drafts. And yes. Um, yeah. So I mean, because the writing in a way is, I, is a way in, is my way into the story. And um, so it's this process of discovery, but my character Orly, for example, I guess she's partly inspired by my daughter who was, my daughter's now 10 and she was around four when I started researching this. Um, and she had created this really elaborate imaginary world that um, she talked about all the time. And that world inspired Orly, my main character's imaginary world in the book. And I thought that would be, um, if you were a small child and the world around you was growing more frightening every day and closing in on you, you would probably need to escape to an imaginary world in order to feel safe. And I started with that. I started with her creating an imaginary world with a friend um, and kind of everything else grew out of that. And I made her family musicians. Um, I can't even, I suppose partly because a lot of the refugees who came to Bolivia were musicians, but also because I really enjoy writing characters who do things I can't do. So ah. it's my it's my way of vicariously being a musician or an artist or other things I have no ability to do. <laughs> so I'm really intrigued by the idea of you kind of just sitting down and creating scenes um, that aren't necessarily in order. And so it's causing me to kind of wonder what your your editing process looks like when you have all these scenes that I imagine, you know, the more scenes you write, the more you sort of understand how the story is unfolding. But sort of what is your your process when you're trying to draft all of these into a cohesive body of work? Well, I, in the beginning, I mean, my first drafts um, are pretty rough. I'm sure my agent and editor can back me up on that. They're like <laughs> very, very rough. And so once I've written most of the story, it's kind of like I'm putting puzzle pieces together and I kind of cobble things together. But once I've gotten to the end, once I know how it ends, then I have to go right back to the beginning and make sure that everything in the book adds up to that ending, leads to it, makes it make sense. Right. Um, and after I do that, so I have to at least do those two drafts before I show it to anyone um, and then anything that doesn't make sense um, in terms of where the story ultimately ends up and the things that ultimately end up being important to the story gets cut. So there's a lot of cuts. And because I always get emotional when I cut things, I have I always have a file that's called things cut from this novel. Um, and I put everything there because I think maybe I'll want to put it back in later. But I never oh. I, I've never once put anything back in. So um but it makes me feel psychologically secure that I, that it's that there. Could, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It makes me think of those, you know, when they release a movie on DVD and they're like, includes deleted scenes. Yeah. And it sort of makes me think of that, you know, that there is a place where these sort of like artistic choices are made and you kind of wonder like, you know, what goes, like, I wonder why they decided to to cut this particular thing or, you know, what would the story have been like if this scene had, had stayed? Right. I think in my case, my deleted scenes are generally deleted for a very good reason. Um, ah. You know, because they didn't, although 
I mean, I have to say with my first book, which was a memoir, there were scenes deleted that I desperately still miss. But in the two novels I've written, I think everything that was deleted was was deleted for for good reasons. I, I tend to write long. Um, <laughs> so that's why I'm not a short story writer. I just I have trouble with pith and <laughs> I have trouble reading short stories, actually, for that reason, because I want something that I can kind of sink into and, and stay with for a while. So right. little bite-sized chunks that that are like a short story collection, I just find really challenging because I feel like I just get invested like in the characters or the world or the situation, and then it's, it's over. So yeah. for me, long books are, are very, very welcome. I completely understand that. I mean, long books are, are a relationship and I feel like short stories and article magazine articles, it's like a, a an affair, like a fling that you have, like <laughs> yes. in between relationships. Um, so like I could read a short story over breakfast maybe, but then, you know, I want to return to something longer that I can sink into a, like for a longer period of time. So I completely understand that. So what kind of things do you read either like, you know, while you are, you're working on a book or if you're between books, like what are your reading preferences? Oh, that's a, my reading preferences are, are pretty um, all mixed up and eclectic. I'm at the moment, um, I've just finished the first draft of my next novel, which is also set in Bolivia and, but it's almost all Bolivian. There's, there's no Europe in this book. Um, ah. And so I've been reading a lot of South American authors. Um, I'm actually writing this novel as part of a PhD at the moment. Um, wow. Yeah, I decided on a late life PhD just for fun. Um, but actually, it is fun. I love it. I love it so much. I have the best supervisor in the world, and I just love the whole process. Um, you are it feels a better it, person than I. Well, <laughs> it just. When you're used to writing alone in the dark and suddenly you have someone whose job it is to read your work every month, it's amazing. <laughs> um, I so, got a master's degree and people would always ask me, like, are you going to go back to school? Like, have you ever thought about a doctorate? And I was just like, no, not me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I never thought I would either. And I think the, the reason I first started investigating it was it was really hard to find teaching jobs at the university level in the UK because the UK requires you have a PhD where ah. in the US you just need an MFA and you're fine you know it's right. a good publication record or whatever whereas in the UK they don't care about your publication record they just want you to have a doctorate and that's the most important thing and so I thought well fine I'll get one then um, so but I love it I really it's really I lucked out with my supervisor at the University of Birmingham, so it's great. So are you currently in the UK then? Um, I am, but only because I've been evacuated from our current home. Our, my daughter and I, well, we, we, all, we currently live in Tashkent, Uzbekistan with oh. my husband. So my husband is currently the British ambassador to Uzbekistan, so um, we all live there, but my daughter and I were evacuated because uh, the foreign office was worried that if we became sick there, we oh. wouldn't we wouldn't be around the proper medical facilities. Um, although we didn't really, uh, we don't have a place to live in London, so we're in temporary quarters here. 
um, it was a bit unnerving flying in the middle of the pandemic and then having to find a place to live in an epicenter. <laughs> yes, I can't imagine how that would have been like to try to navigate all of that. Just yeah. with all the stress involved in moving, you know, in any time, but never mind like during a pandemic. Right. And while my daughter's in the middle of online school in the French school in Tashkent, and so, and we're here without all her school books and without the technology we need. And oh. it, we're finding it, I mean, we're fine. We're fine. Right. We're here. Um, we're both still healthy, and that's all that ultimately matters. But um, it has been a, a kind of a weird time. And it, of course, it's hard to be separated from my husband because we've been apart now for more than a month, which is longer than we've ever been apart. So. Um, and so do you have any idea when you can go back home or? No. Um, wow. No. I mean, I think like everyone else on the planet at the moment, it's pretty hard to make plans. And it's true. It's true. I mean, I think as soon as, I mean, Uzbekistan's airspace is closed at the moment. And I think once it opens, then we'll be able to go back or at least meet my husband somewhere. Somewhere. I mean, I think he probably could use a vacation about now. I would imagine. Yeah. Not sure where is like a good place to go for a vacation at this um, moment in time, but. Right. Well, I mean, we, we have a permanent home, actually. Our permanent home is in France, but the foreign office wouldn't let us go there. Um, oh. Yeah, complicated reasons. Yes. Of but, um, so we could have just gone there and stayed in our own home, which is what we wanted to do. But they said, no, no, you're British citizens. You have to go to Britain. So that's. I'm a dual citizen now. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so it's a little bit bizarre that we actually have a home, but we can't go to it. You can't go there. <laughs> you just can, like, think about it. Like, wow, right. I, I could be in my house, but I'm not. But I'm not. So, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I know that there are so many people in far more difficult situations, and I just got to keep perspective on, on it true. all. It's true. I think that's a big part of any kind of, you know, emergency or disaster that I think, though, we we know so little about that way of life. You know, like I have grown up in like the Midwest in the U.S. and mm -hmm. I don't know about quarantines and, you know, food shortages and, and all these things. And so I think it's it's difficult for people who don't don't have that sort of built-in knowledge of like what these things are like to keep that perspective even though it is so so necessary right I mean, we got to London and I, and I couldn't get milk or eggs to save my life and or flour you can't get flour and I'm like we're in a major city and we can't get eggs and flour it's just bizarre so um, I have to ask you can you get toilet paper um yeah so far we have we've got Plenty. Um, I'm looking at a couple of misshapen rolls that I, you know, I thought because they were wrapped in plastic, I could wash them, but apparently it um, wasn't waterproof. And so I've got these completely soaked rolls of toilet paper that have then hardened into a kind of sculpture that I'm keeping on the whoa. table at the moment. <laughs> we have, for some reason, but I don't quite understand, like an amazing toilet paper shortage in the U.S. Uh, I think that's just um, that's just a, it means that you need a bidet. It's time for you to get a bidet. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to my landlord about that. You know, see if he uh, minds if I install a bidet. Yeah, bring one in. You no, know, no toilet paper. 
It's probably more environmentally sound, you know? So. Well, perhaps. It's just like a weird thing to not be able to have. Like, no toilet paper, no paper towel. Um, it's just like, oh, you know, what, what has happened to all the paper? <laughs> yeah, that is, a, I mean, someone must have it. I bet someone's hoarding it all somewhere. And A lot of people are hoarding it. Um, but then I've also heard there's like some kind of big difference between like the toilet paper you have in your house and the toilet paper that you have if you're in a business and they can't like manipulate the supply chain to send the toilet paper that you have in a business to all the people in their houses. I don't know. It's, hmm. it's very strange and just unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a interesting world we live in right now. It is, but I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. And before I let you dash off, can you let listeners know kind of the best way to reach you online if if they want to do that? Um, sure. Um, my website is jenniferstyle.net. Um, so my surname is spelled S-T-E-I-L. Um, so it's jenniferstyle.net. You can also find me on Twitter. Um, it's at J-F as in Frank. So J-F-S-T-E-I-L-7. Um, I'm also on Instagram, jenniferfstyle. Uh, on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. You just look up my name. You'll find me. Um, I don't think there's a lot of Jennifer styles around. (laughs) All right. Well, again, thank you so much for creating this fantastic novel and for talking with me about it today. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care. Okay. You too. Okay. Now, it is time to talk about new books, and this is a fantastic new release week. Um, There are several really great things coming out that I'm really excited for, so stay tuned and be ready to increase your to-be-read list. As always, this is not a comprehensive list, so if you're looking forward to something and I don't mention it, you can always let me know and that will help me to curate this list to better reflect the interest of the various listeners. I would appreciate it quite a bit. So the first several books I'm going to talk about are books that we've talked about before on our most anticipated books of May episode. So first up is one of my picks, and this is This Coven Won't Break, These Witches Don't Burn, book two by Isabel Sterling. This is young adult fantasy um, with a fantastic lesbian romance and so much great fantasy and world building all about witches. Suzanne Collins is releasing her Hunger Games prequel this week, so that is The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And it's being billed as Hunger Games Zero. And Natalia um, is excited about this one. And then Brooke talked about the new Liv Constantine novel, which is called The Wife Stalker. And that is also out this week. But now it's time to talk about books that we haven't talked about before. So first up, we have On Ocean Boulevard, which is the sixth book in Mary Alice Monroe's Beach House series, and she writes such fantastic women's fiction set in South Carolina, mostly, um, with such a nice 
like feel of, of time and space. Um, her characters are relatable and fantastic. So if you're looking for one of those really great summer reads, I highly recommend Mary Alice Monroe. And this one is on Ocean Boulevard, and it's The Beach House, book six. How about some romantic suspense? So first up here, we have Behind My Words by J.L. JL Drake. This is um, male, male romantic suspense, and it is about a police detective and an author who are jointly investigating a string of murders. Um, I'm always really into romantic suspense, and I love that we are getting some LBGT representation here. So again, it's Behind My Words, and it's by J.L. Drake. Also, in the romantic suspense subgenre here, we have Hell Hath No Fury, and it's by R.C. Bolt. This is a standalone romantic suspense novel about a woman seeking revenge for the death of her husband and child. And you've probably heard me say this a bunch of times, but I really enjoy revenge novels. So I'm very, very excited about this one. It is Hell Hath No Fury, and it's by R.C. Bolt. So let's deal with something a little heavier, a little darker. This is Keep Saying Their Names. It is by Simon Stranger, and it's kind of literary fiction um, with a historical bent. It's about a Nazi war criminal and the family who was ravaged by his crime. Um, it has to do with a torture chamber that apparently someone in Norway set up in their basement as part of their like allegiance to Hitler. Um, I don't know a lot about how World War II affected the Scandinavian countries, so this is a part of history that I'm unfamiliar with, but I definitely do want to read this, even though I'm pretty sure it's not going to be a, a nice, pleasant read. This is Keep Saying Their Names by Simon Stranger. And we'll lighten things back up here with The Restaurant by Pamela Kelly. This is the story of three sisters and one Nantucket restaurant that they have inherited but cannot sell for a year. So this reminds me a little bit of like, I don't know, perhaps Montana Sky by Nora Roberts without the murders. Or what is it? The Last Matinee? by Mariah Stewart, which is also about sisters kind of coming together to keep a business afloat. Um, I've not heard of this author before, but I really enjoy stories about sisters, as do several of my other beastresses. So this is definitely going on my list. It's The Restaurant by Pamela Kelly. Okay, this next book delights me in so many ways. Like, I can't even tell you. This is Real Men Knit, and it's by Quana Jackson. It is the story of foster brothers who are determined to save their foster-turned-adopted mother's knitting shop from closing after her death. And apparently, you know, knitting is not something that these men know a lot about. Jesse, who is our hero, um, knows just the perfect woman to help keep this shop from closing and I guess sparks begin to fly. I am really excited about this. Um, 
I love stories about men who are trying to like keep their family safe or, you know, protect kind of the family interest. Um, it kind of looks similar, although not terribly similar, but a little bit, to the Quinn Brothers trilogy by Nora Roberts. So this again is Real Men Knit, and it's by Quana Jackson, and I really, really want it like right now. We also have a book called What's Left Untold. This is by Sherry Leemkuller, and it is the story of a woman who 20 years later is still kind of rocked by the ending of the friendship with the girl who had been her like you know long-term best friend. And apparently this girl just kind of ghosted our narrator one day and she has never known why. And now I guess she's ready to find out especially when she discovers a letter that was written kind of that summer. So this is What's Left Untold, and it's by Sherry Lemcooler. If you like science fiction romances, you will want to check out the Consortium Rebellion series by Jesse Mihalik. The third book is out this week, and it is called Chaos Reigning. Um, the first book is... Um, Polaris Rising, and it is like a space opera with a really nice romance um, at the center and some pretty phenomenal world building. So if that's your thing, definitely check this out. This week's release is Chaos Reigning, Consortium Rebellion, book three. And again, the author is Jesse Mihalik. So last year I read a book called The Hunger by Alma Katsu. And this is um, a retelling of the Donner Party sort of expedition to California, but it has a supernatural twist. So my next book for this week is another such retelling of the Donner Party story, minus the supernatural. So this is called Answer Creek, and it is by Ashley E. Sweeney, who is an author that I have not heard of until now. Um, but she is examining the Donner Party's journey told from the point of view of a young woman named Ada. And I'm not sure if Ada is a, a real person or if she's someone that was sort of inserted into the story, um, with the author's creative license, but I really am fascinated by the Donner Party's story. So I definitely want to check this out. It is Answer Creek and it is by Ashley E. Sweeney. I'm looking forward to this next book as well. This is called We Are Not From Here, and it's by Jenny Torres Sanchez. It's the story of three teens who flee Mexico in an attempt to make a better, safer life for themselves. Um, when American Dirt was released earlier this year, there was a lot of talk about who has the right to tell these stories and whether a white woman is the, the proper choice. So here we have someone um, who does have a background, um, who, who comes from, no, edit this. So here we have a story that seems to be told by a person who has a little bit more knowledge of what this experience might be like rather than kind of the whitewashed version that it seems that we got with um, American Dirt. 
So this is We Are Not From Here, and it is by Jenny Torres Sanchez. And let's have a bit of historical romance. Eloisa James is releasing Say Yes to the Duke, Wilds of Lindau Castle, book five. And I have only read one Eloisa James book um, in all of my romance reading, and it was not my favorite. However, this particular series looks intriguing to me, so I kind of pay attention and I keep adding them to my TBR, hoping that one day I will, you know, pick up the first one. So this is Say Yes to the Duke, The Wilds of Lindau Castle, book five by Eloisa James. And we have another historical romance. This is The Love of a Libertine. Duke's Bastards, book one by Jess Michaels, and I have really enjoyed some of Jess Michaels' other books, so I am looking forward to this one as well. I really enjoy kind of her wry sense of humor that bleeds through um, into her romances. She's just a really great writer. So this again is The Love of a Libertine, Duke's Bastards, book one by Jess Michaels. Dirty Charmer. This is the first book in the Bodyguard series by Emma Chase. I have never read Emma Chase, but Kristen has read at least one of her books and really enjoyed it. So I am including this here. It is a contemporary romance. Some of her books um, can be kind of funny from what I understand, although I'm speaking from like secondhand experience as I have not read them. But this is Dirty Charmer Bodyguard book one, and it's by Emma Chase. This next book is very, very delightful in kind of a crazy wild way. It's Happy and You Know It by Laura Henkin. I was lucky enough to read an early copy and it just charmed me right away. Um, it's the story of a group of Central Park moms who have a playgroup for their children. They hire a musician named Claire to come and, and sing children's songs for them. And she kind of weaves her way into their group and into their lives and all sorts of chaos ensues. This is women's fiction at its best. It is Happy and You Know It. And it's by Laura Hankin. And last up, we have Rules for Moving. This is by Nancy Starr. And it is the story of a woman struggling to come to terms with her husband's sudden tragic death in an accident. Her six-year-old son has stopped speaking. Basically, her life is in chaos, and she's trying to figure out how she will go on. So this, again, is Rules for Moving, and it's by Nancy Starr. So those are the new books I have for you this week. I hope you are looking forward to some of these, or that you perhaps didn't know they existed, but are looking forward to them now. Um, whichever the case may be, I hope you are reading lots of great books. I hope you're staying safe and healthy as parts of the country begin to reopen. Um, here in Michigan, we are still locked down for, I think, another week and a half or so. Um, and then I think we start phase one, although I haven't heard that confirmed as of yet. But anyway, stay safe, stay well, and happy reading.
If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.